good morning and uh, wonderful, happy New Year's to each and every one of you. Love for you to take your Bibles now. We're turning to the Newer Testament, First Peter, and in First Peter, we're going to be looking at verse 1 down through verse 5, which deals with the entire subject of what does it mean to experience what we might call this morning the new beginning. Not an old new, but the ultimate new new, found, of course, in a relationship with Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord. And so you're making your way to First Peter, and here you will find verse 1 down through verse 5 that Peter is writing to new believers who are going through difficult times. Extraordinary change has taken place. They are dispersed, they find themselves far from home, and now what they need to know is what is certain in these highly uncertain times? What is changeless in these changing times? And the answer, of course, is found in God's word. And so beginning in verse one of First Peter, you and I find these words that Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What we're going to do is to explore these verses together, see how they relate to this whole idea of the new beginning is something that each and every one in this world needs, the ultimate new beginning a relationship with God through Jesus Christ as we look to our Lord together in prayer. And now, our Father, what we want to do is we, on this first day of this new year, twenty twenty-three, we want to understand how time relates to eternity. We want to understand the difference between what is changeable and what's changeless. We want to be able to distinguish between the immediate and the ultimate. We want to see how past, present, and future find a climactic, pivotal convergence point at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, our hearts are going to be somewhat reflective before you. 
as we are pondering the bread and the cup very shortly in our hands, we're going to be thinking about the significance of the finished work of Christ on the cross, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, who overcomes death through resurrection, and asking now in the moments to come that you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. As the people to whom Peter was writing were grappling with change as it relates to the changeless, uncertain times that relates to the certainties of Scripture, he was writing primarily to new believers that were scattered. And the reason they were scattered, among other reasons, was due to the individual that appears on the screen, and his name was Nero. Around AD 64, fire broke out in Rome. Believers, by and large, were blamed for what had just transpired. This was the epicenter in the eyes of the Roman Empire of where things happened, of where authority was to be found. And the epicenter of the government was being threatened. And so there is Nero on one side and a picture of the fire on the other side. And people were now scattering, and there was a growing sense of uncertainty among the believers in particular because they, by and large, according to the historians Suetonius and Tacitus, were being blamed. And those close to Rome, blaming more so than those that were out on the periphery. But nevertheless, on the periphery, people were a bit unsettled as to what was taking place and what would happen next. What we need to do is to understand these five churches, these five settings that Peter is writing to. And so look very carefully at the map. And as you're looking at the map, look at the map in relation to what is written in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. With Peter, we are told, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He went by four names in the New Testament, by the way. Uh, two Semitic names two Greek names, and so God used various ways to be able to communicate the significance of this man. He's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Ever since the persecution in Jerusalem, God's people, subsequent to Pentecost, they began to disperse and make their ways, and what you see on the screen is modern-day Turkey. And these settings were Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. God will gather his people. God will scatter his people. And in the midst of the changeables, what we need is that sense of the changeless one. The God is with us even if not necessarily we are with those that we desire to be with at this particular point in time. Now, what I want you to see as we inch forward is that in verse 2, you're given a glimpse into the Trinity, aren't you? Well, look very carefully. 
We're in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. So this is a highly Trinitarian presentation now that is being offered to all believers, in particular uh, the people who in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, but in that time period, known as Asia Minor, were having to grapple with, well, where is God in the midst of the confusion, the turmoil, and now the blaming that is occurring in the Roman Empire? The political system seems to be in an uproar where can I find a sense of tranquility and peace for my own personal life? Well, Peter knows what you're thinking, doesn't he? And so he says, well, may grace and peace not be added to you, be multiplied to you. And now as he looks into the very needs of the population at large, what I want to do is we now focus our attention on verses 3, 4, and 5, where we're going to now draw out for ourselves three significant certainties with regard to those who the Bible describes as born-again people, or what we might call this morning the people of the new beginning, and allow ourselves in light of this first day of this new calendar year to understand how this relates as we prepare our hearts and our minds for the bread and the cup. Let's check it out. I want to start with this first of three certainties that emerges out of verse 3, that as you and I, those who are born again, we know that, number one, we have what verse 3 would describe as a living hope. Now notice how this begins, blessed be. All throughout the Older Testament and on into the Newer, there is this rich understanding of the blessing. The extraordinary aspect that the Jewish population as a whole was able to embrace with regard to the idea of the blessing that God placed upon his people. And in turn, God's people called to bless God for the blessings that God has bestowed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you and I see God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have to understand that this is not God the creator of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not creational. This is relational. Within the Godhead, Jesus Christ and God the Father can be understood this way. There is spiritual equality. They are equal to one another. But with the spiritual equality comes practical authority. Let me say that again. That with spiritual equality, there is also practical authority in the sense that, though equal to one another, the Son submits to the Father. I came, Jesus would say, to do the will of the Father. And it was the will of the Father that Jesus Christ go to the cross to die for your sins, to die for my sins. So what we are saying now is that there is spiritual equality 
And with the spiritual equality, there is practical authority where Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity, came to die for you and to die for me. Now, God then becomes the source. He becomes the originator, if you will, of what is about to transpire in this verse that is beginning to be unfolded for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is according to our works? No. It is according to his mercy. And so now what God does is he looks upon my spiritual condition. He looks upon your spiritual condition and knows that the only way by which we are going to be able to experience what we might call this morning on this New Year's Day, the ultimate new beginning is that it's going to have to come from him. It cannot come from us. He's sinless. We are sinful. And so it is according to his great mercy. Notice the next phrase. It's extraordinary. He has caused us to be born again. He is the cause of rebirth. We are not the cause of rebirth. I am not the originator. I am not the cause of what it means to experience the ultimate new beginning. It is God. It's God's mercy. It's rooted in him and what he is all about, you see. And now we come to the idea of the new birth. You and I are caused to be born again to a living hope. Now, before you can get to your living hope, you've got to make absolutely certain that you are truly born again. Now, the best way for us to begin to grasp this is to do something very formulaic that we talk about periodically on, on, during the various services and online. We come to this world physically alive, yet spiritually dead. The formula that we sometimes speak of on, in these services is this. Born once, die twice. In other words, when you are born once physically, and that's the only birth you experience, you die twice, physically as well as eternally. Death involves separation. Physical death is the separation of the body from the soul. Eternal death is separation of the being, the person, from God forever. You see. So again, your formula is born once, die twice. But now the flip. Born twice, die once. If you are born a second time of the Spirit, then you die only once physically, but you do not die eternally. Now, this was extraordinarily difficult for uh, that religious man who was highly trained by the name Nicodemus, who came to Jesus late at night. And as he was talking, we are told by the uh, author John in the Gospel of John 
He said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God and that no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And what amazes us is how Jesus cuts to the chase. Has he done that with you? Where everything seems to be going wrong and maybe you feel like, I got to go to Jesus at night because I got to deal with some things that I don't want to have to deal with publicly. But I need that private time with him. And so you get alone and what does Jesus do? He dramatically and powerfully utilizes the twofold truly, or in some translations, verily. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus didn't come asking questions while born again. But Jesus Christ is peering into the soul of this religious unbeliever. And furthermore, he was, a, he was a great theologian, professor of his time, yet does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Knows much about God, but does not truly know God. Nicodemus has got a question. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time? This is the idea now of the second. A second time into his mother's womb and be born? And now Jesus profoundly and prophetically says, truly, truly. Again, he uses the twofold truly because he wants to emphasize and re-emphasize the significance of this. But he now says to Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He will end in verse 8 by saying, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It was, it was 1752 when George Whitfield wrote this to Benjamin Franklin. They, they had a connection with one another and ongoing correspondence. And Whitfield, my office in New England, frankly, looked right out on the fields where, where Whitfield would speak to large gatherings of people would say to Franklin, quote, as I find you growing more and more famous in the world of letters, I recommend to your unprejudiced study the new birth. It's a most important study, and if mastered, will abundantly repay you. I bid you, dear friend, Remember that he before whose bar we must both soon appear has solemnly declared that without it we shall in no wise see his kingdom. In the very same setting, a woman by the name of Donna came to saving faith in Jesus Christ as long as well as his, her, her close friend in our, in our home. Her husband, David, who did everything, seen everything, experienced everything, and was wearied by life, saw the change in her. And so David came to me, and he said, Gary, what I need in life is a new beginning. 
And then he said something significant. He said, I am so tired of flipping the calendar and have another old, new beginning. I need a real new beginning. He came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Lincoln Brewster, you're calling me over, you're pulling me close. With love you surround me, you give me hope. You're taking me deeper, you're making me whole. With grace you redeem me, you restore my soul. Now I'm made new because of you. You hold my head up, you remind me who I am. You hold my head up, I'm alive in you again. You made me new, I'm made new, I'm made new. Now, this is where it's at. This might be a new year. The question is, have you experienced the ultimate new beginning as you enter this new year? Now, for the people in what we now know as modern-day Turkey, in the five locales that were, that were pinpointed on the screen a few moments ago, for them to hold their head up, their, their, their heads are, are moving about left and right, wondering who's going to turn them in for, for being a Christian. These were uncertain times. And what Peter needed to do is to be able to bring certainty to people who experienced uncertainty in the time periods they were in. So now notice what comes next. It goes on to say this, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. The challenge is, is that in our culture, people have dying hopes. They pin their hopes on jobs that may not necessarily produce or, or sustain them. They pin their hopes on relationships that might be here today but gone tomorrow. They pin their hopes on dreams that never are fully materialized or experienced. And slowly but surely, what we find ourselves in is the culture of the fading hope. But along comes the believer. It's according to God's great mercy that you find yourself, I find myself, be born again, born twice, died only once. And notice this, this is intentional. It's the first of three times in this little mini passage of Scripture where the Greek word ace is used to describe the intentionality of this rebirth. You've been born again, little Greek word ace, to a living hope, not a, not a dwindling hope, not a dying hope, but truly a living hope. Do you remember the story? S-4 submarine ran by another ship, began to sink. Entire crew trapped inside, prison house of death, so it seemed. Ships rushing to the disaster off the coastline of Massachusetts. 
we can say that uh, those on board were, were watching, experiencing oxygen slowly giving out. Diver placed his helmeted ear to the side of the vessel, listened, heard a tapping noise. Someone, he learned, was tapping out a question in the dots and dashes of Morse code. And the question came slowly, is there any hope? What you have, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, is the tremendous certainty that you have and you possess a living hope. And that speaks to people who are clinging to things that are changeable rather than the one Jesus Christ who is changeless. Why do I say they're hanging on to the changeables, but you have found certainty into that which is changeless? It's because of what is described next, that this living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, for the person that has never taken seriously the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is what the bread and the cup are fresh reminders of. What you have instilled within you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, is a living hope based upon the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thus, you partake of the bread. Thus, partake, you partake of the cup. And you know then, as you're doing so, I'm filled with the certainty of living hope based upon what's already transpired in time. But now, what I want to do is to draw out a, a second certainty. Because not only do we have a living hope, but second of all, we have what I might call this morning a permanent inheritance. You're up to verse 4, and again, in the Greek, there's this little ace that is utilized. The three aces are the means by which I'm breaking down these three verses. It's not only to a living hope in verse 3, it's to an inheritance in verse 4. Now, this inheritance is a fascinating word because this inheritance, it's a very unique word in the original language. It has to do with that which is passed down to family members. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, you are part of the family. You belong. You're part of the family of the born again. Part of the family of the new beginning. And so you have an inheritance, and this inheritance is, is distinguished in three ways. First of all, it's in perishable. It's not subject to destruction. Second of all, it's undefiled, literally unstained, unpolluted in a fallen world. Thirdly, unfading, like a flower. It doesn't wither, 
doesn't die. And that's your, that's your threefold description of this, of this inheritance if you're part of the family of faith. But now notice furthermore, for re-emphasis, he now goes on to tell you and to tell me that it is kept. It carries with the idea of a Roman soldier in that time period, same word was used to describe them, who was on guard, guarding something that belonged to Rome. Now what he's saying is that your inheritance is being guarded by the ultimate guardian, found not in Rome but in heaven. And now you can almost imagine that the people in now modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor back then, they have this sense of growing security because what Peter is now doing is reminding them of what I would describe as first things. What matters most. That because they are born again, they have the certainty of a living hope of verse 3, and they have the certainty of a permanent inheritance of verse 4, which means then that you nor I can overlook or take lightly the inheritance if we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that's been provided for us, like a couple in Milwaukee did, greater Milwaukee area. They had a Van Gogh painting entitled Still Life with Flowers in their home. Here's the rest of the story, though. Sold for $1.43 million in Chicago to an unidentified buyer after hanging for decades in the living room of this suburban Milwaukee couple, totally unaware that it was painted by the Dutch artist, you see, they thought it was a reproduction. And then, when the house went up for sale, the real estate agent discovered the work, had it authenticated by experts in Amsterdam and the Netherlands, and somebody made a profit, and someone else simply overlooked what they had. And the challenge in our world is that unbelievers take for granted what we already have. There's a blessing in being given what God has truly wanted to give us. It was New Year's Day. It was 1863, sleepless night, three hours shaking hands at New Year's reception at the White House. President Lincoln returned to his office to sign the document he had promised 100 days before. Reading now from the latest imprimis out of Hillsdale College. September 22nd, Lincoln proclaimed that on that first day in January in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of the state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforth, forever free. And the day came. New Year's Day, 1863. Alan Guelzo tells the story in his fine book, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. 
And as Lincoln prepared to sign this historic document, at first his hand, we're told, was trembling so much from all the handshaking, he couldn't even do it. And he told his, those present, quote, I never in my life felt more, and I've marked the next word, certain. I never felt more certain that I was doing what I needed to do than in signing this paper. If my name ever goes into history, it will be for this act. My whole soul is in it. If my hand trembles when I sign the proclamation, all who examine the document thereafter will say he hesitated. But when his hand recovered its steadiness, he wrote out his full name, and as he did, only for state documents. And then Lincoln, we are told, smiled and said, quote, that'll do, unquote. And you see, with the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and the Greek word, tetelestai, it is finished. It's as if God the Father is looking upon the work of God the Son saying, hmm, that'll do. Nothing more needs to be done. Hmm. It's already been done by Jesus. This is what those who are part of what I'll call the new beginning family know. It's part of those who are born again understand. It's a certainty. You have here the certainty of a living hope. You have the certainty of a permanent inheritance. And thirdly, you have the certainty of a finished salvation. You're up to verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. The little word for here, again the Greek word, is for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what God is now doing at this point is that he is doing this by his power, not by our power. We are being safeguarded. This whole matter of the finished salvation is carefully being watched over. For salvation revealed in the last time, what is he talking about? When you and I explore very carefully the concept of salvation, there is both the, the cross base and then the larger base for it. Let's understand this in light of verse 5. The cross of Jesus Christ, the penalty for sin is paid. Put faith and trust in justification. In the present tense, if you are growing in grace, the power of sin is broken. Sanctification. In the future sense, the presence of sin is abolished. You see, glorification. What Peter now is doing is he's taking the sum total of all that he wants his readership in verse 5 to understand is that no matter how uncertain the times are in which you live, there is the certainty that comes with what Christ has achieved for you and for me. It is secure. It is complete. It is tetelestai. It is finished. He was a pastor of a congregation preparing for what then would be his New Year's Day message. 
and based upon the Older Testament of 1 Chronicles 17, 16, and 17. Christine Witz tells us the rest of the story. He wrote a hymn to go with the message. Little did he know that his words in that simple hymn would be sung throughout the world for the next 250 years from that day of January 1st. It became one of the most beloved hymns of all time. Amazing Grace. 250 years today. Newton wrote Amazing Grace for his Anglican congregation. They sang it on New Year's Day, January 1st, 1773. And they reached that point. They understood where Newton was coming from, from his own experience. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And he penned this with such authenticity. And they expressed it with such emotion, such universal appeal. Been sung and estimated more than 10 million times, recorded on more than 7,000 albums, according to Newton's biographer, Jonathan Aiken. Been sung by U.S. president, folk singers, congregations around the world. During the COVID lockdowns, it was recorded by singers from 50 countries with the message that amazing grace and love of Jesus is stronger than life and death itself, translated into over 50 languages even played on the bagpipes by a NASA astronaut at the International Space Station. And now you take these three highly intentional certainties, apply it to your life, and you say, I still have that picture in my mind of Roman fire and the uncertainties that the general Roman population were experiencing and what were the believers like in that day and how can I translate it in 2023 and what can I say to those that are feeling such uncertainty and how can I bring these threefold certainties into their, into their lives? Well, look at the image that appears on the screen in conclusion because lo and behold, as you look very carefully at that image, which you see is a flower emerging from ashes. Rome burned, a flower emerges, there is life, and it's found exclusively in Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. Let's pray. And so, Father, what we want to do now is to give you praise, honor, glory for who you are, as we continue in our worship, as we prepare our hearts, our minds for receiving the bread and cup, we want to do it in a way that honors you, brings glory to your name, allows for us to reflect upon the certainties that are found in being part of the family of being born again. And may the result be, Father, that you're honored, honored by what is transpiring in this service, the services of today those that are viewing today and in the days to come. May the result be, Father, that there is this new freshness that comes with knowing Christ as Lord and Savior. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name.